G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Hopefully the audio has come out a lot better. I, uh, I did mention it earlier. Yep. But yeah, the, the drama that we had over the last couple of weeks with the recording. Hopefully we won't have those same issues again. We had some connectivity problems. We had a bit of spiritual warfare going on. There was all sorts of things happening. So hopefully this audio is much neater than uh, what we've had in previous weeks. Uh, as I say, every week we're trying to get it better and uh, bring you a good quality uh, sound. So hopefully things are improving, bear with us. Yeah, we appreciate your prayers because the work we're doing here puts us right in the firing line. So yeah, if you've got a, uh, a moment to to pray for us each week as we put this podcast together. We appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for your support and uh, for the positive feedback that uh, we're starting to get through uh, concerning the show. That's really good to see. Absolutely. We've got a huge episode for you today, a huge one. Continuing our study in Genesis 1, we get into day two of creation and talk about a very hot topic in the outer fringes of internet weirdness. We're talking about dome cosmology, which takes in everything from modern scholarship to ancient Greek philosophy to flat earth theories and pagan mythology. But of course, we're going to spend most of our time in the word of God as we get to the watery foundation of what the Bible says about the firmament. Yeah, Chris, it's a big one and probably the hardest concept to get your head around out of everything we're doing this season. If there was ever an episode that's going to get me hate mail, this is probably it. I actually had to stop and ask myself, Tim, do you want to get hate mail? Because this is how you get hate mail. I thought the last episode was going to get me hate mail. Evidently, we're not getting enough circulation to attract that yet, but this one might break the internet if people start sharing it around. So let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, I, I actually did get mail from a guy who'd started reading my book, picked up on the fact that I'm not a flat earther and decided he was going to let me know how he felt about that. Turns out he's a civil engineer, apparently. and He wanted to tell me that the shape of the earth is very important, the Christian doctrine. Well... At least we agree that it matters. Mm -hmm. we're, uh, we're reading today from Genesis 1 and verses 6 to 8. And we'll start with the NIV. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Now, in a text so full of the concept of water as both life-giver and threat to life, how can we ignore it any longer? These waters of the deep are not simply material waters. They're spiritual places inhabited by spiritual beings, some benevolent and some dangerous. The Bible is full of this kind of imagery. I always understood that it was just water, though, and, like, if it's not real water, then where does real water come from are we talking about natural water or spirit beings a little bit of both what's going on uh voltron i thought it was the, of course it's so obvious. yeah well it's all <laughs> of that stuff put together right it's it's not a metaphor yep. it's two realities being communicated at the same time so water is life power and growth but it's also chaos and danger and death that's the reality of water in the natural world but there are spiritual entities on both sides of that distinction and they inhabit the world too. They live in places that are inaccessible to man. An idea best 
represented by places where water can be found or where it comes from. So again, this isn't a metaphor, it's a way of talking about two things that are real. On the one hand, we have watery places, and on the other, we have the habitations of the spirits. It's talking about both at once, which is why we need to be careful about word meanings. According to the words of the text, there is meaning that applies to both of the things being described. That's what we need to be looking for. But to be clear, I'm not saying that when you drink water, you're ingesting spirits. Uh, you, you aren't diving into a pool full of angels. The, the point being made is that watery places were seen as places where we can't go and live. And therefore, they belong to the divine realm. It's that functional ontology again. If it's inaccessible to us, it must be for the gods. We can't live in the water, but the spirits can. And the place where they are most at home is the tehom, the deep. The, that's the term in chapter 1 verse 2 where the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. So what we're saying here is not that gods live in water. That's no more true than saying that gods live in mountains or out beyond the stars of the sky. They're not aliens from space. The, the point of this kind of language is inaccessibility in every case. Whether it be that the realm of the gods is too high to climb, too deep to dig, or too hard to breathe in, the point is that you can't go there and survive. Humans aren't equipped to deal with the spirit realm because of the non-transcendent nature of our flesh. That's why what defines the biblical Elohim is not their appearance or nature or particular characteristics. Remember, we talked about this in a previous episode. It's their access. They're able to inhabit realms or dimensions, if you like, that we simply can't. And that's whether they have a tangible body or not. Now, I'm gonna read you a little excerpt from Answers to Giant Questions, which I don't normally make a practice of doing, but it just helps to illustrate. And if you want more, you'll have to buy the book. Uh, so I'm reading from page 55. And just a little uh, paragraph here. I would contend that it is much the same as when you say to me, the man upstairs was looking out for me. Now you and I both know that when you use that expression, the man upstairs is not real. God is real. And we both know that you're referring to God, but there is no man and there are no stairs. Because I know this expression and what it means. I don't actually believe that there are stairs somewhere and that at the top of the stairs I should find a man who is looking out for me. What you and I both believe, and what is intended to be communicated, is that there is a personal being capable of observing and protecting us who dwells in an inaccessible realm that we cannot reach. That person is God, and he is understood to dwell in heaven. Thus he is the man upstairs, the object behind this phrase. This end of the quote. So my point here is that the concrete language that we use even today isn't necessarily meant to be taken literally. And applying the same understanding to biblical text doesn't diminish it. It's actually a far more natural way to speak and to communicate a concept. It's just what people do. But getting to understand those figures of speech sometimes requires some local knowledge, or at least some thought given to the context. Now, the ancient Near East has a dry climate. There's lots of desert and dry wilderness. Water is a scarce commodity and it's essential to life. Water comes from high mountains where there are springs or where snow gathers and melts. Since gods rule the land, they get all the best stuff, so they get to live in lush gardens with lots of water. On the other hand, for those who live in the desert, the sea is a terrifying place of unpredictable danger and death, and that makes it the perfect habitat for gods of chaos. Scripture talks about two different waters, the waters above and the waters below. We get a different description in other ancient texts, like those we looked at back in our second episode of the podcast. As a typical example, 
the Babylonians talked about the bitter water and the sweet water. They said that sweet water, which really means fresh water, uh, comes up from the Apsu and brings life. But the bitter or salty water was bad. This differs slightly from the biblical view, but still makes the same point, that the waters above are good and the waters below are bad. Where the Babylonians praised their gods for bringing up things from the Apsu, we know that nothing good comes from the abyss. What about that shadowy place, Dad? You don't go there, Simba. <laughs> uh, Lion, Lion King reference. Gotta, gotta use those when you can. Indeed. When God creates the firmament, he acts to separate the realm of the chaotic from that of the life-giving. And it's interesting noting that this is God's second act of separation. So we're starting to see a trend in God's actions in that they reflect his character. Yeah, that's right. Again, the word of God is passive, like we've seen before. Let there be, which tells us that, again, we have a situation where God is assigning function to an already existing phenomenon. But many will argue that the word for vault or firmament implies an action that God is doing in physical space. That's why they point to material creation here. I'm more in favour of expanse as an English translation for reasons I'm about to explain. But anyway, the Hebrew noun is rakia. So that's the word translated as firmament. Modern Bible teachers tell us that ancient people believed in a solid dome over the earth in which were fastened the stars and the planets and beneath which flew the birds of the air. We're told that they thought this conception was real. However, ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian astronomy contradicts this idea clearly in spite of the discovery of maps that appear to depict a flat earth. We'll get to those later. The fact that ancient Babylonian and Egyptian astronomers were able to calculate not only the non-linear movements of the planets, but their distances from the Earth, shows clearly that they never believed in literal dome cosmology. They even knew that the Earth was spherical and they had its approximate diameter. But their calculations were done in order to determine periods of time, not the geometry of the cosmos. I mean, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So we've got the purpose for them spelled out there and that's exactly what they were used for. But again, we'll get to that later in another episode coming soon. Now, since the data was used to determine calendar for both religious and mundane purposes, and there was no separation between science and religious faith and practice. This same scientific data appears in mythological literature with the same attention to detail and no difference in the way it's discussed or what it's said to mean. Let's not forget that it was the priesthood in Babylon that did this astronomy that modern interpreters call science. Remember back in episode two of the podcast, we read parts of the Enuma Elish that recorded star positions relative to a calendar of 360 days and divided into 12 months. This is the original purpose of the Zodiac. So we know that the dome cosmology model that we're told about today was totally not a thing back in the day. Well, okay, so that makes sense so far, but it does leave us with a couple of nagging questions. So the first one is, what is the firmament? It's one of those words that you don't hear outside of the Bible, really. And how did modern scholars get this idea of dome cosmology? Hmm. Yes, we, we will get those answers as we go along here uh, with a quick dip into the scriptures. And uh, by the way, I'm sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. He's uh, decided it's a bit cold out and he doesn't want to share the bed. 
I understand. Um, yeah, the Rakia is mentioned eight times in the seven verses of Genesis 1. It is spoken of first in chapter 1, verse 6, as a separator between the waters. The firmament functions as something that is spread out to divide and distinguish between one and the other. The image created by similar verb usage elsewhere creates a visual sense of something hammered or beaten like bronze plate in verse 7. This verb, rakar, means to spread something out, often by beating it flat, as a blacksmith might do with a bronze ingot that he wants to turn into sheet metal. So taking rakia back to its root verb results in an interpretation of the concept that depends on this literal hardness of a material substance that forms the solid surface of the firmament. Assuming that the waters above the firmament must also be literal, results in reinforcement of the idea that the firmament must be solid in order to restrain the water and prevent it from falling to the earth. But the firmament is then called heaven, or literally the sky, in verse 8. This places the literal water in the firmament because that's where the clouds are. Ancient people understood perfectly well that water comes from the clouds within the sky, not from some space above it. So in Genesis 1, the firmament keeps two places that represent the abode of spirits apart from one another. On the one hand, you have the abode of the holy angels above the sky, represented by waters above. And on the other hand, you have the domain of the unholy and chaotic, which is represented by the seas below. The middle ground is the sky itself, and that's what the firmament is. This is actually consistent with the Babylonian cosmology, which gives different spiritual beings different levels of access within the cosmos. For example, the Ajiji never go to the underworld, but the Anunnaki go wherever they want. And humans can't go into either the upper or lower realms unless it's in a dream or something. I talk about this a lot more in Answers to Giant Questions, so if the Anunnaki fascinate you, check it out, and no, it's not aliens. Well, that's just disappointing. <laughs> so in the natural sense this expanse that we call the atmosphere plays a significant role in regulating the climate and that's how the changing seasons of the year exert their influence on the land so we don't get an explicit mention of the function of the skies regulating the climate in this text but later expressions of the creation process imply it right and we'll see that when we cover the great flood in later episodes so what we do find later in Genesis 1 is that the seasons are marked not by the climate, but by astral alignments in the heavens. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the heavens, some have argued that the face of the heavens in Genesis 1.20 must be talking about a hard dome surface, but that argument is flawed because it inverts the so-called dome. It says the, the birds fly across the face of the, the heavens. Well, the birds fly at the bottom of the heavens, in case you hadn't noticed, not the top. There's no birds among the stars. The face of the heavens is the air above our faces. It's the near side, not the furthest part. That would be the Yeraka Rakia, or the sides of the Rakia. That's that's how they talk about the extremities. Right, so if you're going to talk about where the birds are, they're the, they're the part that's close to us, not the part that's furthest. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was interesting. That so keen to keep the, the dome in the text that they've made it upside down so they could uh, fit the birds in. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... The Psalms mention the Rakia twice. Uh, we have Psalm 19 in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above, that is the firmament, proclaims his handiwork. And in Psalm 150 verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Again, the firmament. Representing divine beings. 
as an assembly in God's presence. So the Psalms depict the firmament as the place where God dwells with his angels and as such the word firmament represents both that place and those who inhabit it according to that usage. As an example, if I say that England mourned the loss of Prince Philip, I don't mean that the physical geographical location of England was in mourning. I mean that the inhabitants of the land of England were mourning. The name of the place represents its inhabitants. Now, the waters above the firmament are not literal waters, but the domain of God's faithful spirits. The waters of the firmament combine with the firmament itself as language descriptive of the domain of God. There is no literal water above the heavens unless you want to include meteoric ice, but let's not slip into concordism here. Trying to fit the modern science into the biblical worldview is a big mistake. Your, your science is going to be out of date uh, before long, and then you'll have to try it again. Uh, so moving on, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, again, the firmament above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this language is used to convey the idea of glorification of the righteous. Okay, some, some kind of shining brightness that indicates their glory. Again, the idea is that the firmament represents the host of heaven. Pardon me. So being bright like the brightness of the sky means having glory like God's angels. One of the most interesting books in the Bible is Ezekiel, and it's mentioned five times in his book, Rakia. I'm sure I butchered that, but you'll correct me if I said it incorrectly. Excellent. Don't ask me to say it again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's mentioned five times in Ezekiel, and only Genesis 1 mentions it more times than that. So does that mean anything of great significance? Well, it's certainly a hint that the similarities in vocabulary might be indicative of a similar context in terms of final composition of the two texts. And some have suggested that perhaps it was Ezekiel himself who gave us the final form of the primeval history. And we can't prove that. Uh, Rakia does occur five times in Ezekiel, four of those times in chapter 1, and once in chapter 10, verse 1, to divide zones in God's dwelling, the throne of God, separated from the cherubim, the throne guardians, by a shining crystalline expanse. So I'm going to read those. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 22 to 26. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. That's God. I love that uh, that passage. Ezekiel is fascinating. And I love that word tumult. It's a tumult, not a tumor. <laughs> Kindergarten cop. Nice reference. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 1. This is the last one in Ezekiel. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, 
in appearance like a throne. So again, it's a reference to the same thing, the same part of this vision that Ezekiel's having. So he's not beholding this in real time. He's having a vision as as a prophet. That's that's the thing that sort of uh, signifies the authenticity of a prophet's message. If if he's actually seen the Lord, uh, that validates his uh, message. So at the start of all the prophets, you get the same thing. They have this, this vision of God. And so Ezekiel goes into some detail explaining uh, his comprehension of God's uh, throne and his, his dwelling on this uh, amazing chariot. Now, uh, when you think about it, he says it's like crystal. Well, crystal can't be hammered or beaten like malleable metals right i mean you hit a crystal it shatters so the primary connotation of the term is not related to the verb at the root okay that rakah but instead is to the effect of the verb on the substance so spread out in an expansive fashion it's effectively a glass ceiling or a barrier that's impenetrable yet without any specific thickness right so why use a term related to some hard object to describe the firmament when it's obviously describing the intangible sky and sky is not hard? Well, the answer is that Hebrew doesn't do abstracts. If you want to describe something that's abstract, you have to use concrete terms and draw the conclusions about the abstraction from the properties of the concrete terms. That's what we were doing with the waters before when we talked about the abode of spirits. And uh, it's, you know, again, what we were doing uh, when I read that excerpt from the book about the man upstairs. The firmament is the border between the seen and the unseen realms used in literature to represent the domain beyond that border and the inhabitants of that place. As such, whether the text is mythic history, poetry and song, wisdom, prophecy or apocalyptic, in every case, the firmament is not described in literal physicality. That verb raka is indicative not of hardness, which would make it adjectival, sort of describing the quality of it, but instead of spreading out. Think about the manufacture of shields. I mean, this is a really good analogy. Is any uh, Captain America fans out there? I mean, you don't make a shield out of lots of little pieces because shields are meant to protect you from getting pierced by sharp things little gaps and cracks in it would make it useless. So you make a good shield out of a single piece of something really tough. You got any uh, Thor and Oaken shield fans in the house? <laughs> and uh, seamless, so that it's impervious to penetrating weapons. Bronze was a great material for shields, where you had to beat it into shape to flatten it out so it was thin and therefore light enough to wield. But what makes the shield great is its impenetrable nature, not the process of beating it. Any method that spread the material thin enough would suffice. These days they do it with hydraulic presses and that sort of thing. God spreads out not only the heavens and the earth, but also the creatures on the earth. In uh, Isaiah 42, 5, this is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his, its people and life to those who walk on it. So, silly question, why isn't God beating all the animals flat so they're wafer thin? <laughs> Yeah, why wouldn't you beat your animals flat? Hmm. Well, it's obviously not the point of the verb, is it? No, he spreads them out far and wide over the land. It's distribution, okay? It's, it's spreading something out is, is thinning out the distribution rather than uh, 
crushing it with impact. Uh, now, as you said earlier, the existence of the firmament provides on a tangible level a mechanism for weather and seasons, uh, which is a good point. And the atmosphere is where our weather phenomena occur, and we need that for the natural growth of plants and all life forms on the land. This connection between the airborne or celestial phenomena and the inaccessible domain of the gods is what gave rise to the concept of using those phenomena to refer to divine beings. First the sun, moon and stars and visible planets as entities that watch over humanity, then storm gods and wind gods, and when we get to the second temple period, there are angels for rain and angels for snow and so on. We've been talking about the terminology of uh, Genesis chapter 1, which led to the, this idea of a tangible material firmament in the sky. Are there other words elsewhere in the Bible that talk about this dome idea? Yeah, that's right. We haven't examined every passage that led to the rise of that notion of a solid dome that we see in Scripture. There are other words that get equally awkward translation that leads to a materialistic interpretation of the firmament. first one I want to pick on is Galgal. This first term is included because I saw an argument that a single use of this word overturns the idea we're presenting, the idea that dome cosmology is a late and artificial construct not held by biblical authors. So in case you were wondering, that's where we're going. It's here because the claim is that it's supposed to be related to words that convey the idea of a dome-shaped heaven. Well, I'll let you be the judge. Galgal appears 11 times in the Hebrew Bible, and on one of those occasions, it is rendered in some English translations as heaven. So here's the other 10 translation choices. We have the whirling of chaff before the wind in Psalm 83:13. We have the wheel broken at the cistern from Ecclesiastes 12:6. Wheels like a whirlwind in Isaiah 5:28. Whirling dust before the storm in Isaiah 17:13 rumbling of his wheels, Jeremiah 47.3. Among the whirling wheels in Ezekiel 10.2. Between the whirling wheels in Ezekiel 10.6. The whirling wheels in Ezekiel 10.13. You knew you were going to get that from Ezekiel. Chariots, wagons and wheels in Ezekiel 23.24. And horsemen, wheels and chariots in Ezekiel 26.10. Now, here's the one that supposedly supports dome cosmology by rendering Galgal as heaven. Psalm 77, 18 in the King James. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Note that only the King James has this rendering. Most others have whirlwind. The suggestion that Galgal connotes a dome-shaped heaven comes from other words like Galath, Bowl and Golgolet, or skull. Remember, um, Golgotha, place of the skull. The idea seems to be that these terms have a similar derivation and appear to give a dome shape. So note there's three tiers uh, of cosmology referred to in that verse. Heaven, the world, the earth. In this reading, the heaven is our disputed term. The world is the Hebrew Tevel. And the earth is the Hebrew Eretz, which is sometimes used to refer to the underworld. So you can see three tiers in there. There's lots of talk about waters, which makes us think cosmologically. But before we run with it, we need to get the Psalms message. This is an appeal to God to remember the Exodus and to restore his mercy to Israel and his reputation before the nations. Now, while Eretz is sometimes used correctly to refer to the underworld, 
as is the Ugaritic cognate Aris. Uh, often a reference to the earth shaking is the upheaval of order in the nations, which occurred when the pharaoh perished in the Red Sea. This reading is supported by the use of Tevel, a word that never appears in the Torah, here translated as world. Tevel refers to human civilization in general, and usually in the context of other nations. In this reference to the Exodus, it recalls the reputation of Yahweh as God of Israel, which became fearsome once news of the Exodus reached the ears of the nations. If you remember from Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Now, Tevel does not appear in any cosmological context because it refers to the people, not the land. Note also the reference to arrows in the psalm, which recall the march from the south tradition preserved elsewhere in scripture, and again, which I address in my book. So the waters here in the psalm are references to divine powers, but so far, two out of three layers of the supposed cosmos are disproved, and that's before we rule out Galgal as heaven in favour of the consistent use of whirling, in this case, whirlwind. So that's a strike on all three levels of the cosmos, and that means the dome cosmology of Psalm 77 argument strikes out. Just to reinforce that conclusion, here are some more problems with that view. A bowl, or galath, is an inverted dome, so it's the wrong shape. A skull, or galvalet, is again the wrong shape and the wrong function. Both of those shapes reconcile with round, but not with a defined 3D shape, which is why it bears relationship with whirlwind or whirling wheels instead of dome or vault. It's the movement of the stars in the sky that give it the connotation of whirling. And putting heaven in the verse is an attempt to commit the logical fallacy of assuming that which the defence attempts to prove. So that's the end of that. But we have another word, and this one comes with a really awkward pronunciation, which is chug. This word is another one used to support the dome cosmology argument. Sorry, I wasn't coughing there. That was me saying chug. It initially seems to tell us about the physical hardness of the firmament, but we'll find out what it really means with some quick study. So Job chapter 22 and verse 14. Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. So there's our chug, is vault. Either God can't see through clouds, or we're not supposed to take this literally. Likewise, Job 37, 18 uses rakah, poetically, to describe the impenetrable heavens. Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? And the word hard there is kazar, as opposed to uh, rakia. So at this point, the idea of a hard dome encasing the heavens sounds like a natural fit if we're embracing literalism and disregarding poetic language. But let's see how else the same word gets used in scripture to see if literalism still works. In Proverbs 8.27, uh, that's, a, that's a great passage actually, I think I've mentioned it before as a wisdom text that talks about creation. Uh, so for context you can read 22 to 31, um, but in verse 27, when he established the heavens I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. And that's going to come up again in Isaiah 40 verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now this might be the biggest flat earth proof text in the arsenal, but we're about to see why it doesn't work. The translation circle is unfortunate because the idea is meant to be one of circumference rather than shape, a border that goes all the way around some area. 
Eretz is better translated as land rather than earth. While in Proverbs 8, the reference is recalling Genesis 1 verse 9 and the gathering together of seas to reveal the dry land, which we're going to look at later. Again, it's not the shape, it's the boundary that goes around the outside. We've got to stop thinking about uh, the earth in terms of a planet, because when we see circle and earth, we naturally think, oh, well, we're talking about a round shape. That's the way most other translations of the, uh, the Job passage render it. Rather than a vault, they translate chug as circle. So these three examples use chug as the boundary line of heaven, the boundary line of the earth, and the boundary line of the deep. There's no need to deny the existence of these three realms and their relationships with each other, but we need to understand them correctly. I'm struck by this idea of God uh, dividing and separating different things again, like he's keeping things in check and keeping everything in order. Yeah, that's right. So far, we've got nothing that gives us any idea of shape. Let's have another look uh, at a word that shows how they interact. So this one's Agadah. This last term is another one that gets translated as vault when other occurrences of the same word are completely unrelated. So in Amos chapter 9 and verse 6, this is a big one. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So a uh, great cosmological passage there. And we've got the heavens, we've got the earth, we've got the sea. Um, and this vault... Uh, is the subject of Agadah, the vault. We'll find this same word again in Exodus 12, verse 22. Take a bunch, a bunch, that's Agadah, of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you should go out of the door of his house until the morning. So, of course, that's from the uh, the Exodus and the uh, the Passover event. The same word there, as we saw, translated as vault, is now bunch. Uh, now we're going to look at 2 Samuel 2.25. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group. That's Agadah, group. And took their stand on the top of a hill. Uh, so we've gone from vault to bunch to group. And Isaiah 58 verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose to lose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, straps is Agadah, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. So now we've had in our four occurrences, vault, bunch, group, and straps. Since we already went through the exercise of analysis on the term Galgal, you should be able to see what's going on here. The four occasions of this term Agadah give us the idea of the thing that binds other things together, or the point at which they're brought together a strap, a bunch, a group, a foundation of God's dwelling. The bond or fastening between heaven and earth in Amos reveals a connection between the earth and the deep in the same instance. Again, the three-tiered cosmology is real, and it's in the text, but that doesn't give us a dome in the sky, or a flat earth, or pillars holding it up out of the watery deep. All right, Tim, thank you very much. We're going to have to leave this mind-bending episode uh, here until next week. But what, do we, what have we got left to cover? Can you give us a bit of a sneak preview of what we're going to cover in the next episode? Well, next week we'll talk about flat earth maps from the ancient world and those pictures you find in textbooks where they show the ancient understanding of the world like a snow globe. And uh, we'll get into some really important reasons why this stuff matters. Awesome. Sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to it. It's time to wrap up today's episode. 
but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Well done. You sounded just like a Klingon when you were saying some of those words. I was very impressed. <laughs> Don't suppose you watched the new uh, He-Man cartoon trailer? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. He-Man was, He-Man was awesome. I watched yeah. a lot of that. I mean, I would have been... Uh, yeah, what, I don't know, six to eight thereabouts. Uh, yeah. Watching some He-Man and, yeah, Duncan and Borko and... <laughs> nice work. Watching them uh, riffing off each other. They they had a love-hate relationship, didn't they? they I think did. Orko, Orko loved everyone and Duncan kind of hated loving Orko. Yeah, well, it's funny because, like, in the 80s, like, they had this rule where you couldn't show violence. So even, like, Ninja Turtles and stuff, they don't actually fight each other they kind of like the bad guys fall over or they go to punch and they punch one of the bad guys like yeah. does the did really strict rules but i think batman the animated series which came in the line was the first cartoon to actually use guns and show like actual guns not like lasers or whatever um yeah i always thought that he meant just you know sort of sat on top of the battle cap and just had him roar at the yeah yeah i know it's funny what are you laughing about?